0: Okay, so we are two weeks away from Easter Sunday, two weeks away from the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory over sin and death and hell. And you might feel like that's sneaking up on you because it's only March 13th and Easter's so early this year. But I am excited today to preach this text to you. It is going to get you ready for Easter. This scripture from Acts 17 is continuing Paul's missionary journey. To Thessalonica. And like I said, it is going to get you ready for Easter. So let's pray. Let's dive right into this text. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is profitable and inspired, and it is your gift to us. And right now, I ask that you would cause me by your spirit to preach this faithfully, and you would give us ears and hearts ready to listen to hear, internalize, respond, and obey to your word. Help us to hear, help us to obey. We pray we need that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so about six years ago, I signed up for a half marathon. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Laurel and I were going to run together with friends and we had heard that this race was going to be in Boston. It was not the Boston half marathon, but it would be in Boston. That sounded like fun to run through the city. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So first of all, I trained by running these little loops around our apartment. I don't think it ever fully registered with me that a half marathon is not a little loop. It's 13.1 miles. Then I found out that the race was not really in Boston. It was in the Blue Hills of Canton, which are hilly. And then the actual summer day that the race was held on, the temperature turned out to be in the low 90s. And when the race day came, we had to wake up really early in the morning to get to Canton in time. And I remember waking up and feeling like I would just rather sit here, and then (laughs) sleep a little longer, and then have a cup of coffee and enjoy a relaxed breakfast, and instead, for some reason, I had signed up to run 13 miles. And I remember the feeling as I started the race, the feeling that I had very early in the race, why am I doing this? I tried to remember why this, I was trying to remember why this had felt like a good idea but I was running and dozens of people were passing me. I wasn't going to win the race. And this task of running 13.1 miles started to feel, feel very arbitrary and pointless. Whatever motivation I had originally had to complete this task or say that I did it or to cross this off my bucket list started to just kind of seep away with every uphill climb. And occasionally I would pass a person, but I think I was only passing the people who had already started walking. And eventually, somewhere on one of those long uphill climbs, I stopped. I just gave up, and I started walking. It all felt very painful for a voluntary experience. And when I realized how physically grueling it was to run for 13 miles... I realized it wasn't necessary. And I stopped and I walked. Okay, now let's talk about a different kind of physical pain. This is a pain that I have never experienced firsthand, but I have observed three times in the last four and a half years. And that is the pain of giving birth. So as any new dad will tell you, there's really nothing that anyone can tell you that will prepare you for the intensity of watching your wife give birth. People told me it was intense. They were not lying. It is intense. But after the birth, as you are holding your child and reflecting on this amazing thing that just happened, nobody looks into the eyes of their newborn child and says, was that really necessary? <laughs> no, the, the pain of labor and even the discomfort of a nine-month Pregnancy is hard, harder than I know, but every mother says it was worth it. And what is more, not only was it worth it, there's no other way. It was necessary. So hold these two ideas in mind, necessary and unnecessary, as we get into this text. This is Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, 1 through 9. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, When our story begins, Paul and Silas are traveling to Thessalonica. If you've been following along with our recent sermons, you know that they have been in Philippi. The distance between Philippi and Thessalonica is about 94 miles, or the distance between Springfield and Boston. Paul and Silas are walking down that road, making their way on foot to this large metropolitan city called Thessalonica. More than 100,000 people live here. And the first century city of Thessalonica was religiously diverse. So there were people there committed to the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. There are Egyptian cults in this area, but there is also a sizable Jewish population in the city. And as was his custom, Paul started with the Jewish audience. He had a method. He went to the synagogue. He would start with the Jewish people who were attending the synagogue. These were the people who were longing For the promised Messiah. And Paul would go and would speak to them on their turf in the synagogue using the Old Testament scriptures, which they had already read and studied. For three straight weeks, three straight Sabbath days, Paul went to the synagogue and preached to them. And the text tells us he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. Paul would reason, he would explain, he would prove. I'm repeating those verbs because we need to notice them. Paul's taking the Old Testament scriptures and he is putting the pieces together like a good attorney. He's not looking right now to be inspirational with these people. He's reasoning and he's explaining and then he's proving. He's making a case. So why is that important? This is important for all of us who think that faith in Christ requires us to check our brains at the door. Or we think... Yes, okay, the Christian faith makes sense to me because I was raised in a certain home with certain presuppositions and a certain view about the world. But if I had my neighbor's background and no one in my family had been to church in the last four decades or told me about God, then all of this stuff would be as strange to me as I bet it is to him. In other words, this is the, I went to Christian camp so this makes sense to me, view of the faith. And Paul would say to that, it does not matter. While we are, of course, deeply influenced by our family of origin, Paul believes that this message is absolutely and completely intellectually credible. He's not looking right now to sway his audience emotionally or get them to believe something that is really actually objectively impossible, so he has some sort of hocus-pocus to play on them. So Paul is speaking right now to a naturally skeptical audience. They may be versed in the Old Testament scriptures, but his message is that they were waiting for a promised Messiah, and it actually happened while they were waiting. They just missed it. They were waiting for a promised Messiah. They had a specific conception of what that promised one would look like, and here comes Paul saying, actually guys, it happened already. His audience would have believed that the Messiah would be a political leader, that he would wear a crown and lead an army and conquer Rome. That was their notion, and Paul needs to free them of that idea. He needs to make a case, but it needs to be a persuasive case that would connect with their intellect. So he takes the book that they respect and that they believe and that they think that they understand, namely the Old Testament Scriptures, And he reasons, and he explains, and he proves that these scriptures are pointing to the promised Christ. In Paul's ministry, the gospel was an eminently reasonable story. It was a story that could be communicated and defended unapologetically to intelligent people. So let's not miss that. Okay, now what was the content of Paul's message? What was Paul trying to get across to his audience? Remember, we're talking about a man who traveled from place to place with a limited time in each place. What did he consider the heart of his message? What was it that he was working at so hard to reason and to explain and to prove? This is what Paul preached. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus Whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. As you might be guessing, I'm going to zero in on this phrase it was necessary. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Why did Paul emphasize the necessity of the suffering of Christ? And why is this at the heart of the gospel message? So, this is hard for us. When I was first being exposed to what I would call the doctrines of grace as a teenager, when I was first being exposed to this idea in a serious way, I had some questions about this. Questions like, why are we always singing again and again about the death of Christ? Why are we always rehearsing this? these songs, with these lyrics, I was so terrible, I was so depraved, I was such a sinner. Then Jesus came and rescued me, again with those themes. I felt like, isn't that a little overdramatic? And why do we talk about it again and again? And there's a whole Bible, isn't that a little lopsided? And other skeptics have said it more like this. They might say, so I understand Jesus as a teacher, as a historical figure, maybe even as the greatest embodiment of love that we've ever known. But why, why all the blood? Why all the blood and the thunder? It's a, bit, it's a bit much. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? I'm going to give you three short reasons why it was necessary. The first reason is, It was necessary because of our sin. It was necessary because of our sin. The suffering and the death of Christ was necessary because of our sin. And we recoil at that. Why do we recoil? Let me put it this way. We don't like the idea that we need help. Personally, so I hate even the idea of being an inconvenience to someone. I don't like that someone is even inconvenienced on my behalf because my, what I want to be is self-sufficient. So have you, if, you're one of, if you have this certain personality, have you ever been unintentionally late for a meeting with someone that you consider important and someone else is suffering, albeit in a small way, while you are stuck in traffic or got held up And you're in an inner panic because you don't like ever to be on the short end of anything. We don't like to be on the short end of anything. We don't like to admit that we need help in any way. It's our pride. It's our autonomy. It's our fear of anything that we can't reciprocate. Maybe you've received a gift before and you said, you didn't have to do that. And that's also code for, now I have to do that, right? (laughs) It's our fear of anything that we can't pay back. It's that we think we're generally respectable and self-sufficient people. We generally do the right thing, and we think, I've got this, whether we do or not. Let me give you an example. In the spring of 2011, uh, Laurel was expecting our first child. I was preparing to be a father. I was also recognizing at that time that our household income was not going to be sustainable for our family. So it was in some ways kind of a stressful time you would think that I would have proactively sought out one of the experienced fathers in my life or in this church and said, talk to me about being a dad. I have no idea what I'm doing. You would think that I would have found some men to talk to and said, walk me through how you think about providing for a family. What is it going to take and what's the trajectory that this needs to be on? So why did that not happen? Why did I read a book instead and think, oh, I have everything under control? It was stupid. Okay, but pride is stupid. And pride says, I don't need help. And this is where the scripture becomes abrasive. Scripture tells us we need more than help. We need rescue. Paul says it was necessary for Christ to suffer. There was no other way. My sin was not so bad that it inconvenienced Christ. My sin necessitated the suffering of Christ. And I don't mean that in a general humanity's sin necessitated the suffering of Christ. I mean it in the, it was my sin that held him there. And we do recoil at that. We think that we are generally good people. But it was necessary that Christ should suffer, not in some generic way, but for my sin, for your sin. Our sin made the suffering of Christ necessary. Secondly, it was necessary that Christ would suffer because that was and is and always has been the plan of God. The second reason that Christ should come to suffer and to rescue us is that it has always been the plan of God. It has always been in the mind of God. Sometimes we think that maybe after sin entered the world in the garden that the Trinitarian God had to huddle back up and go back to square one and come up with some sort of plan B rescue operation as though God was throwing a curveball. No, in First Peter it says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you through him, who through him are believers in Christ. In other words, it was always in the mind of God that Jesus, God's own son, the lamb without blemish or spot, would come as a sinless sacrifice. And Paul would have walked his listeners through the Old Testament text that they knew so well, the Exodus, Passover lamb, and the sacrifices of Leviticus, and said, do you see these spotless lambs that served as temporary sacrifices? They were getting you ready for Jesus, the one who could make a sacrifice for you once and for all. Paul would have taken his listeners to isaiah 53 and told them it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offspring an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the suffering of christ was no rash solution or no temporary quick fix it was always in the mind of god so it is easy to look at the life of christ and say It looks to me like he was just killed. He was a controversial figure. He had some enemies. One of his close friends betrayed him. He was handed over to religious leaders. They gave him to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities wanted nothing to do with him. They gave him to some barbaric soldiers, and he was crucified, as many others were at that time. Yes. But then we must balance that answer by saying, Jesus was not killed like a famous political leader, or a martyr that died for a cause. It was his mission to die. It was always in the mind of the Father. And Jesus died voluntarily, giving his life for us according to the Father's will. When Jesus prayed alone the night before he died, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Knowing that his earthly mission was culminating, knowing that this had always been his role. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was necessary. And the third reason that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer is this. If Christ had not suffered, we would have. We think that sin is not a big deal. We think that God grades on the curve, and that as long as we aren't doing anything that we or society would deem particularly bad or on the wrong end of that curve, then God will understand. We think that our sin is understandable or relatable or explainable and therefore kind of excusable. And maybe it would be if we were simply comparing ourselves to other people. But the problem is, while we may be doing that, that is not what God is doing. Our sin is an affront to a perfectly holy God. And the Bible is clear that the way of sin is death, that it is judgment and separation from God. God is holy and God absolutely must punish sin. He will punish sin. He is going to punish sin. If Christ had not suffered for us in our place, we would have. The Bible says that the punishment that Christ suffered means that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There was no other way. It was on Jesus that God laid the iniquity of us all. So let me ask you this. It's very simple. Do you believe this? As we move into a season where we celebrate the resurrection, do you believe and own in your heart that your sins made it necessary for Christ to suffer? Or do you think that you are generally good enough for God? And furthermore, do you believe, as Paul would say, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one who can take your place, that he can take your punishment and restore your relationship with God. That was the message that Paul preached. So what happens with that message that Paul preached? The text tells us that some were persuaded. Their minds and their hearts were engaged in actually a wide cross-section of people, Jewish people, believing Greeks, not a few of the leading women. The text says, come to faith in Jesus, the gospel reaches a cross-cultural lines, and this is the nucleus that starts to form a church in Thessalonica. But there is also, while there's conversion, there's also chaos. The religious leaders are jealous, and they find some men who apparently have nothing better to do, and they form a mob, and they get the whole city in an uproar. They come searching for Paul and Silas, looking to drag them out in the mob, but Paul and Silas are nowhere to be found, most likely the people who have been housing them have hidden them away, knowing that they're going to have to get out of town. So they grab onto this guy named Jason. Jason has been hosting Paul and Silas. Jason is not some political insurrectionist. He's not looking for trouble. He's just this guy with a strangely, a strange name for the 21st century. And you know when this mob gets fired up, though, They're not going home without someone. So the religious leaders drag this guy out and say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they're saying there's another king, Jesus. Jason is someone who heard Paul's words. He hears Paul say that this Jesus that he is preaching about is the promised one. And Jason's persuaded. He takes these men into the, to his home. And for some reason, when the mob comes, it's Jason left holding the bill. He gets accused. Falsely accused of supporting me, these men who are acting against the decrees of Caesar. So similar to like Lydia, who we talked about several weeks ago, like Lydia was, Jason is probably a local man of influence. He's got a house. And he ends up in harm's way because he took the risk of receiving these people. The people in the city authorities are disturbed at the accusations that they hear. You don't necessarily get the sense that they really understand the dynamics going on. But they say something like, hmm, well, we don't like the sound of that. Tell you what, give us some money and we can forget about this. We'll call it square. The idea that Jesus is Lord was costly for Jason cost him money, reputation, security. He's unjustly becoming the fall guy in this episode. But what's the end result? Well, for Paul and Silas, it's on to the next town. They the text tells us they escape the situation by night and they go on into the next town where they can find the next synagogue. The gospel advances. And we know from later letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that a church sprang up in Thessalonica. As for Jason, we don't know. This is his little cameo in the Bible. He got wrapped up in something that he wasn't looking for, and he unfairly had to pay the bill. But here's what we do know. When we see the suffering of Christ, and we know that he came and suffered and died and rose again, and that we have new life in him, Everything changes. Everything changes. So I imagine Jason saying, okay, I might be suffering unjustly right now, but my suffering pales in comparison with what Jesus suffered for me. My reputation might be damaged right now, but my identity is secure in the one who died for me and atoned for my sins. You might be taking my money, but I will live the resurrection life forever with the one who paid for my sins and secured for me eternal life with the Father. Why did Paul preach this simple gospel so intensely? Because when we believe it, it changes everything. It was necessary for Christ to suffer for us, and he did suffer. But we thank God together that when he suffered and died, he did not stay dead. And when we see his love for us there, there are only two responses. We can continue in our proud self-will and say, we don't really need a substitute. Or we can respond in faith and repentance and glad obedience and say, this love demands all of my life. Pray with me, please. Father, we see the sacrifice of your Son in this text. And we see that it was necessary, that it was our sin and your plan to save us from our sin. And we rejoice in that, rejoice in the substitutionary work of your son for us. This day we receive it, we believe it. Help us to rejoice in that now as we take as we come to your table. We pray. Amen.